uh, today. We're going to continue to look at the beginning of the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at this story of the wedding in Cana. It's a story that's only in the Gospel of John, uh, so it's kind of a unique one at that. It says it's Jesus' first miracle, turning about 180 gallons of water into wine, uh, which is interesting because not only is this a story of Jesus providing wedding guests with a huge amount of alcohol, but contrary to what some commentators in the past have said, this was not like the watered-down stuff that they drank on a daily basis for, uh, to prevent contamination. This was the good stuff. How do we know? It says they even brought the steward in to test it. You know, So I picture him sitting there going, this is the test like a 44 BC, Celtic Gaelic Leon. I smell earthy undertones. This, this is almost as good as the vineyards of Maximus, Severius Grapius, better than the rest of us, or something like that. Um, so, uh, but it says it was the good stuff. So this is not, this is, this is real wine. Uh, and so Jesus clearly is okay with people drinking wine, at least at a big celebration. And at a big celebration, drinking a lot of it. And, you know, you got to run the numbers on this. It's 180 gallons. So you've got, uh, you know, if you had 180 people at your wedding, that's a gallon a person. And uh, uh, that's almost as much as my high school reunion drank up in northern Minnesota. Um, but you do the numbers on this. You figure a wedding, a wedding would be four or five days. You know, that breaks it up to about a quarter of a gallon. But that's still a quarter of a gallon. So th this is clearly a lot. And um, so we're left with a Bible story that forces us to have to confront the church's long and kind of tortured relationship with alcohol uh, and one that we now have uh, with other, other drugs as well. But by long, I really don't mean all that long in the history of Christianity. It's really mostly been in the last 150 years or so. If you went back, uh, not counting like the Puritans, although actually uh, they excavated some Puritans and found that they brewed beer, contrary to what everyone thought. Um, that's not your image of a Puritan, is it? You're going to go to hell, you know, pass me the beer. That's not our image. But that was. If you went back to the Middle Ages, you know, when supposedly everything was all about church all the time, you know, and you had knights and, and monks and all this kind of stuff, you would, have had, you would have seen that there were festivals. And the festivals were all church festivals that honored saints. Uh, and these would be huge festivals. They would go on all day long. There were 30, 40, 50 of them, depending on how many they wanted to celebrate. And they honored the saints, kind of like we honor St. Patrick, right? In only the most somber way possible. And who supplied for these festivals? It was the monks and the nuns. They made, that's how they profited. That's how they paid for themselves, a lot of them. Um, and these were church-sanctioned days where the whole town would shut down and everyone would have a festival to honor Saint whoever. And it was later, it was much later that the church started having a hard time with it. Mostly in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s it started, because alcoholism at that time became a huge problem. 
And the church started seeing the damage that it was doing to families and communities and people. And, they, you know, when you start seeing things getting ripped apart and kids going without food because dad finishes up at the railroad and hits the bar every night, you know, you start to think that maybe the church needs to step in and do something about this because there's real suffering going on out there. And so there was a legitimate concern about the abuse of this. And so the reaction they had was to turn to prohibition. And churches ended up leading the effort to get alcohol banned in the country. And so we end up having this debate uh, now all these years later that tends to get hijacked by the extremes of each side. I know that will shock you that in America the extreme voices tend to dominate the debate. But um, it, it tends to get broken down into one side, talking about all the harm and the difficulties that come with addiction, and the other side that says, you're all just a bunch of prohibitionist prudes, and look what it got us, Al Capone, and, and gangs, and, and it didn't work anyways. And so the two sides square off, and we get at loggerheads with each other. But the Bible... If you dig back through the scriptures, is not hard line on this issue at all. In fact, it takes a pretty common sense, moderate kind of approach. Uh, let's look at some verses. Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is just, there's many, many that we could look at. Ecclesiastes 9, starting at verse 7. Can we get Ecclesiastes 9? There we go. Um, go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has long ago approved what you do. It's a different view on predestination, huh? You're not destined to hell. You're destined to have a good time, says the Lord. Or Psalm 104. Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. So God is saying, eat, drink, and be merry. But, at the same time, there is a bit of a moderating voice in the Bible as well. So Ephesians 5, an example. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Or Romans 13, 13. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. There's a whole lot more, but they tend to break down along these two lines. God made wine, so enjoy it, but don't get drunk and do stupid stuff which seems pretty common sense to me. It's not a hard prohibition. It's not the frat house on Friday. There are some times we let loose, and sometimes we indulge a little, but we don't go overboard. For whatever reason, the New Testament is very worried about debauchery. Don't go debaucherying. But why then, if this is where the scriptures are, why did they get into the prohibition thing? Why were the people who worshipped the miracle winemaker-in-chief wanting to ban it? I have a few theories. Some, and they, these aren't really, these are more theological ones, less about sociology. But 
Uh, the first one is that I, tend, I think it, it's hard to teach morality in nuanced, complex ways that leave room for people to make lots of individual judgments. For example, it's easier to say, just say no. The line is clear, the command is simple, it's concise, you can put it on a billboard. It's a lot harder to say, just say yes sometimes, but not too many times, and enjoy it, but don't overdo it, and have fun, but don't get into debauchery. That's a hard slogan to put on a billboard. And, uh, and, and, it, and it makes sort of the teaching more complicated. And I, I think in some ways, it's much simpler to just break it down, yes or no. And two, I think there's this deeper fear of a slippery slope, or a, a moral slippery slope, or I'll call it the moral dam. So to use an analogy, in this worldview, uh, the wor it, it's sort of like there's a river and they're in society, and the river is dammed up, and it's a bad river. It's a river that's full of debauchery and licentiousness and all these things. It's full of immorality. It's just waiting to break through, wanting to break through. And there's so much of it that it would flood us and destroy us. But this dam holds it back. And yes, the dam may be big. It may be rigid. It may be inflexible. It may keep out some good things, too. The salmon can't get up the river. The kayaker can't keep going. The archaeologists can't find the native ruins that are blocked up by it. But that's just a price you have to pay to keep out all the bad stuff in the river of badness. And if you start to allow cracks in the dam, even little bitty ones, it may seem like a harmless little crack, but, but a crack will always become a big crack, and when it becomes a big crack, the whole thing cracks, and then it floods, and we're all going to die. So don't even allow a little crack. Hold it all back. And if you've been to the side of it where you see legitimately the bad things that can happen, when you've seen a family break up, this is serious stuff. And the benefits, in that case, clearly do not outweigh the pain. So from that perspective, it's better to cut it all out. And in that case, it makes sense. But religious thinking can tend to fall back into all or nothing because at some level there's kind of a deep mistrust of leaving people's moral decisions to ourselves. There's a mistrust of our judgment. The sort of fear that, that, that we are always wanting to go towards the selfish and the excessive and the harmful. It's not that there is no drive towards the selfish and the excessive. That's clearly a part of our human nature. But I think it's important to talk about things like addiction and substance abuse and moderation, all these things as a church, because these are real issues that we deal with. And these days, you have drugs that are even way worse than alcohol, things that are hard to use in moderation, if not impossible. So what's our response? What should we say as a church? Well, I don't believe prohibition is the answer. Uh, to use the damn analogy, as far as we can take it, 
even the Colorado River dams allow some water through because they understand that if you never allow water through in a controlled way, it could overflow and then the whole thing will break. So they understand that letting some through prevents cracking. And in the same way, using some in certain times and places can prevent the sort of repression that then makes it more attractive, that then leads to excess, that then leads to more repression, that then leads to excess, recognizing, of course, that there are some individuals who are not able to use just a little and need to have none. I, I remember when, uh, right before high school, I moved towns. And I'd grown up in more southern Minnesota, a very Swedish area. And Swedish Lutheranism historically had, was not, had a very unfavorable view of alcohol and had jumped on board the prohibition bandwagon lock, stock, and barrel. My grandpa could have lost his job as a pastor if he was seen uh, drinking in public. Uh, and they had statements against it, carte blanche statements against it. Now, it wasn't that intense by the mid-80s, but you know how things in the culture don't go quickly. Right? And so this is kind of how I'd grown up. And uh, so then we moved up, to, up north. Well, now it's not a Swedish area. It's Southern European, Eastern European, uh, you know, mining town. They had a different perspective on alcohol. And uh, so I'm moving up right before high school. And we were on, on a bus going to the science museum because I'm a nerd and I like the science museum. And a bunch of us are on a bus down to St. Paul to go visit the Science Museum, and there's this girl next to me, and well, I'm the only new kid in the entire town because the mines had been laying off hundreds, thousands of people. People were moving out, and uh, so I was the only new kid in the whole thousand-kid high school that year. So I was kind of a bit of a curiosity thing. Let's, uh, let's find out about who this new kid is. So I remember this girl sitting next to me, and she's like, where'd you come from? Oh, I was, you know, I used to live in Isani. She's well, why, why did you move to this town? And I said, my dad got a job. And they all turned away. Huh? Where'd he get a job? If I would have said he's a shovel operator at the mines, they would have thrown me out the window, I think. My dad used to have that job. How did he get a job? And I said, my dad's a pastor. Oh, oh, oh. They knew that was a unique situation. Oh, she said, do, do you do anything at your church? I said, I don't know, maybe I'll teach Sunday school or something. I help out reading and stuff like that. And I looked at her and I said, what do you do? Um, well, I go to the church over there in Chisholm. I'm the bartender. My eyes went. What has happened to me? Where have I moved to? What weird universe is this? And uh, uh, it was funny, I was so absolutely shocked. But yeah, the, the Orthodox Church, they have their worship building, and then it's a few feet, you gotta walk across the parking lot, and there's the fellowship hall, and instead of just, you know, powdered lemonade and cookies, it was, they, she tended the bar. And, um, and it was funny because I reconnected with her uh, through Facebook, of course, and uh, I remember we were having this conversation, and she said, you know, uh, she and another a friend of hers who went to that same church, they all said, you know, in all those years, decades, I never ever saw anyone overdoing it. I never saw anyone abusing it. I never saw anyone drive drunk. I, we never had a fight or a scene, and, and nobody could remember. And uh, so clearly, 
some can use and not become dependent. Uh, there was a study. I'm going to jump to a little sociological study here whenever the screen decides to work again. Forty years ago, there was a study they called the Rat Park Study. And the scientist, what he did is he took these rats and he put them into two groups. And he gave them both morphine. And he got the rats absolutely hooked on morphine. And then what he did with one group is he segregated them uh, by, by gender. So he had like this all-male rat cage. And then on the other side, you had the male and the female rats. And, uh, uh, and then he gave them both the option of water, too. So they could quit the morphine and go to the water. Uh, in both sides, but one had all, one had, they had spinny wheels and it was this big playground and, and they were making rat babies all over. <laughs> and the other side, on the sort of all male rat side, even when the water was offered, they kept drinking the morphine. On this side, the morphine use dropped to maybe 20% or something, they said. And so the guy's conclusion was, it's the environment. That it's, and, and he made a really sweeping conclusion from this. It's the environment, it's not the drug. Um, and then he paired that with another study that he did of Vietnam vets. Because there was a lot of heroin use in Vietnam. And so he said the prediction should have been, if it was only the drug, that when people came back from Vietnam, heroin use should have continued at the same level as it did in Vietnam. But what he said is the statistics showed it dropped to the same level it was before the war. So whatever percentage it was before was the same percentage after. And he said, see, this proves my thesis. When people are in this really stressful, harsh environment, yes, they use, but put them in this nice, happy family 1950s world with homes and, and jobs and everything else, and then they don't. Ergo, it's the environment. That was his conclusion. There's TED Talks you can look up. There's a guy who makes a sweeping case that it's only the environment. Now, then other scientists have since tried to replicate this thing with the rats. Um, even down to trying to get the exact same kind of rat, in case, you know, one rat is genetically predisposed, they cannot replicate the study, uh, which is a problem in science. A, a study is supposed to be replicable. But the good point of it, I guess, that it makes, is that it, does, it, it, for, it should force us to rethink that environment makes a difference. That people who have loving support systems social connections, friendships, are less at risk. Not zero risk, less at risk. And that people who've experienced trauma, <coughs> who live under intense stress, who have lots of loneliness, are greater risk. Again, it's not 100%, because we can't create a utopia that would make everything different. But, <coughs> if, if, and of course, Study after study has shown there is no one single cause and one single cure. But the idea is one that I like to think of as a very grace-based approach. You know grace, that word we use all the time in the church. We are justified by grace through faith. Right? Said Paul, said Martin Luther 550 million times. We are saved by grace, not by fear of punishment. <coughs> so what if... Our approach as a church 
to the issue was more from a perspective of grace. That instead of trying to punish the drugs out of someone, we go the opposite way and try to love them to death. What if we tried to make the church, and I'm not saying we aren't, but really focus our energies as a church on trying to be this supportive extended family for people. Even people who are having really hard times, even people who are going through addiction, and tried to create these connections that keep us healthier, that provide us with support when there's stress or there's trauma, to be there for each other when there's pain, to be there for each other even when we're doing stupid stuff to excess. Because there will always be pain in the world. We'll never eliminate it. But the church can be sort of a loving bulwark against it. It won't be 100% cure, but it can make an impact. We can be the place for people who are unloved to be loved, where addicts can find friends, not judgment, where drinking is used with warm connections instead of as a substitute for it, which is why I think they don't ever have problems at that Orthodox church, is because it was always in a context of a church family. There was always the, con the, the, commu the community was there. The connections were there. The drinking was an add-on, not a replacement for. And we can support policies in our world that try to treat addicts and provide them with support instead of stigmatizing them and trying to punish them. And this isn't enabling. Telling someone you love them is not handing them a pipe. There is a difference, right? But it is something that we can do. Because part of being Christian is recognizing that the world is broken and that we as people are broken and suffering happens and trauma happens and genetics happens and we can choose to look it in the face and challenge that brokenness with a connection to God and each other. Amen.